The Annie E. Casey Foundation has focused on improving the well-being of American children for over 70 years. It's also one of the most influential watchdogs for child welfare in the nation. And here to tell us what they do and how American kids are faring today, it's a pleasure to have Lisa Hamilton, the president and CEO of the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Good evening, Lisa, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thanks so much, Denver. I'm happy to be here. Begin by telling us some of the history of the foundation and who was Annie Casey. I'd be delighted to. Jim Casey was the founder of UPS, the global logistics company. Jim's mother was Annie E. Casey. Ah. Jim grew up in the Pacific Northwest, mm -hmm. in Seattle primarily, and he faced as a young person many of the challenges that young people face today. He grew up in a low-income household. His father died when he was really young. Mm -hmm. uh, he grew up the son of an Irish immigrant. Uh, he had to drop out of school when he was around 11 to help care for his mom and siblings. He had three siblings. And so um, despite those uh, challenges in his young life, um, Jim was quite um, a brilliant and entrepreneurial young man and started UPS when he was 19 years old oh as a goodness. bicycle messenger company. And uh, he always believed that the success he had in life was due to his mother. And mm -hmm. so when he became wealthy beyond his own personal needs, he started um, several foundations, but one of those is the Annie Casey Foundation, which he named in honor of his mother. Um, I'd also love to say that, you know, Jim was quite a philanthropist. He started not just the Annie E. Casey Foundation, but also Casey Family Programs, mm -hmm. which is a foundation based in Seattle that focuses on child welfare, um, the Marguerite Casey Foundation, named in honor of his sister, um, and also the UPS Foundation, the corporate foundation. So I think he's one of America's great philanthropists. That is quite a legacy. It and is. certainly the UPS Foundation and UPS has a wonderful moral compass. Absolutely. As an organization. Well, for the past 30 years, the foundation has issued the Kids Count Data Book, which explores how American childhood experience has changed since 1990. What does the data book reveal? Well, the data book is a really important way for the Casey Foundation to provide a scorecard to the country about how children are doing nationally and how they're doing in every state um, because there are state policies that affect how kids are doing. So we think it's really important mm -hmm. to look at that data by state as well. And what we do is look at four important areas of a child's life, the economic well-being, their education, their health, and their family and community circumstances. And so we look at 16 different data points mm -hmm. that help us understand how kids are doing in this country. And as you said, we've been looking at these similar factors for the last 30 years. And there is good news, but also troubling news. Always the case. Always <laughs> the case. Um, so in the good news, um, what we have seen over the last 30 years is that we're making important progress in a number of areas. For example, um, 95 percent of kids today now have access to health care. That's right. Hugely important mm -hmm. so that kids can um, be healthy enough to learn and, and thrive. Um, we have seen some of the lowest rates of teen childbearing that we've seen since we've been uh, keeping uh, this data. And we're also seeing increased rates of high school graduation. So all of those are incredibly important data going in the right direction. Um, on the troubling side um, is the fact that far too many kids in this country are still growing up low income. Mm. And as many of your listeners know, um, 
growing up in poverty is one of the biggest risk factors that a young person could have. And so even today, um, we have um, nearly half of kids are growing up in low-income families, but 18% of them are growing up in um, families that are below the federal poverty line. Um, So a really important area that we think um, needs to be addressed. Um, The second thing I'd say the data tells us is that we've got a lot of work to to do around educational outcomes for kids. Um, More than half of kids, 65% of fourth graders aren't reading on grade level. Mm. And we know that if they aren't reading uh, proficiently at that age, the odds increase greatly that they are going to drop out of high school. And so that's a really important measure that we know the country still needs to pay attention to. Um, And then the last thing I'll say is that um, by every measure, children of color in this country are facing bigger barriers to success. And so um, we continually raise the alarm that as the demographics of our country change, we need to pay attention to how kids of color are doing. And so the Kids Count data also tells us um, that across all of these 16 measures we're looking at, we need to pay attention to making sure that children of color um, are as successful as they can be. Well, looking at the changing face of America, how many children today are children of color? Well, today we have actually hit a tipping point that Casey had been uh, letting the country know was coming for quite a while. Today, 50 percent of the children in this country are children of color. And if you combine that with the data I just talked about, the prospects for us having healthy families and healthy communities and even a strong country are diminished if we don't make sure that we are leveraging the potential of all our kids. There's 74 million children in the country. And so they're 25% of our population, but I like to say they are 100% of our future. (laughs) And so if we aren't paying attention and making sure that all those kids are on the path to success, we are really putting um, so much of this country's future at risk. And Lisa, speaking about children growing up in poverty, what's the impact of having a single parent? Well, we think about single-parent households as really um, making that family more at risk of being economically unstable. As we all know, uh, the costs of food and of housing and of clothing are going up and up and up. And so if you don't have the benefit of two incomes in a household, it just makes it ever more likely that that child is going to grow up um, without the economic stability that they need. And often people think about, um, you know, the access to clothing or the access Mm -hmm. to food, but um, there are really significant implications um, for, you know, their access to health care, for even housing stability. When kids move around a lot because their parents don't have the money to make sure that they have stable housing, that has huge implications for their education because they're often changing schools all the time. So when you look at the data that I shared around fourth grade reading or third grade reading, it's not just that schools aren't teaching our kids well. It's that these kids are in fragile families that are moving all the time or don't have access to health care or don't have access to good food. Those are all the ingredients that get a, a kid to school ready to learn. So it really does take paying attention to all of these factors to make sure that kids are successful. Yeah, that's a great point. You have to look at this holistically. Sometimes we, we blame the schools, we but do. there's a lot more to the equation than just what's going on in the classroom. Absolutely. Absolutely. If children aren't healthy, 
think of the incidence of asthma. Mm. Um, if kids are missing school because of health problems or they don't have eyeglasses and so they can't see the materials, if they're changing schools all the time because they don't have housing stability, if they show up hungry because they don't have access to breakfast or lunch, all those things can have a huge impact on um, educational outcomes. And so I think it's really important for us to understand it's not just about what schools can do, but what whole communities need to do in order to make sure the kids You know, a corollary to Kids Count is something you spearheaded when you uh, first came to Casey, and that is the race for results. How does that differ? Well, when uh, we had been doing uh, the Kids Count data book for about 23, 24 years, Mm -hmm. and as I said, in every one of these data books, we disaggregate the data by race and could see that children of color were not faring as well as their white peers. Um, We decided we needed to look at that a little differently. We needed to dig into that and what the causes were a little more deeply. So what we did was identify 12 indicators, some of them similar to those that Mm -hmm. we use in Kids Count, that um, are key milestones for kids from birth through adulthood. Things that we all want for our kids, that they're born at a healthy birth weight, which means they've got a lower incidence of health issues or they're reading on grade level at third grade or graduating from high school. And we combined all this data um, by race and by state uh, in order to see how different demographics were doing. And the data was just startling to us. So um, the race for results scores, when you put all of that data together, was a possible 1,000 was the best that Mm -hmm. any kid could do. That would mean that um, all the kids in that racial category, we're meeting every one of those milestones. And that's what we would hope for all children. Unfortunately, what we saw was that um, for Asian and Pacific Islander children, their scores were in the 700s, certainly not meeting all the milestones for them. But for American Indian and African American children, their scores were in the 300s and 400s. And so it was a different way for us to help the country look at how kids were doing by race and to help sound the alarm um, of something that, you know, is sort of embedded in the title of that report. It's called Race for Results. And what it means is that we are in a race to get better results for our kids so that they can all be successful. And one of the most important ways we can do that is by paying attention to the impact of race on the results that we see for kids. And so um, I'm, I'm really proud that Casey took the step to not just share that data, but to also help inform a collective understanding of how we got to that data, mm-hmm. that it's not just the consequence of individual decision-making, but that there are generations of discriminatory policies in how we've done housing and how we funded education and how we've given people access to jobs and how we have enabled people to save for the future. All of those um, policy decisions, many of them discriminatory for hundreds of years, are really conspiring to hold children back even today and to hold families back. And so part of what we wanted to do with Race Report Results was to not just share the data, which is what we've been doing for kids with Kids Count for a long time, but to also tell the story of the variety of barriers that not just African Americans, but American Indian, Pacific Asian Pacific Islanders and Hispanic children have faced um, in their pursuit of success. And so much of that is quite insidious. Um, And really unconscious to a certain degree. My Mm -hmm. daughter went to business school, 
And as we were looking at business schools, one of the one places you looked at was Booth, which mm. is in Chicago. Mm. And one of the important factors of getting into business school is to show up and to tour the campus and to talk to some of the students and professors. And it really shows you have an interest in going there. Mm -hmm. But then you start to say, how many kids could not afford that trip? Exactly. And although it seems innocuous, it really isn't. It's it, discriminatory in a, in a very a way that I think a lot of people would not be aware of. Right. Or even imagine education funding. So much of the education funding um, for K-12 through schools in this country is through property taxes. Mm -hmm. Well, if you consider the fact that more uh, children of color live in low-income neighborhoods, which uh, the property isn't valued as highly, uh, and they don't have um, the same sorts of property tax rates. You can easily see how, sure <laughs> though you know a, a facially neutral policy that says we're going to fund schools through property taxes, once you consider housing segregation and the impact of living in high poverty neighborhood, you've got low income kids with much less access to resources and, and um, that falls more on children of color. So um, those are the kinds of things that we have to pay attention to that policies that may appear to be racially neutral um, certainly weren't always that way by design. Sure. Um, and they certainly can have disparate impact on the outcomes. Uh, on the outcomes. <laughs> exactly. Well, Casey does a lot of work in all these different areas, so let me take one, and the one I probably know you guys best for, and that would be your Juvenile Detention Alternatives Initiative and what you've done about reducing, reducing youth incarceration. Yes. Talk a little bit about that. Yes. Well, the, um, let me start generally by saying the Casey Foundation focuses in three key areas. The first uh, being focusing on keeping children and families, mm -hmm. and that's our work around child welfare and juvenile justice, two systems that often um, remove children from their families. We focus on economic opportunity. How do we help more children grow up in economically stable families? And then in um, neighborhood development, how do we help create safe, healthy places for kids to grow up? And so the work that we do in juvenile justice is directly tied to that belief that children should grow up in families. Mm -hmm. um, even children who might have made a mistake or done something wrong still need the love and support and nurturing of their families. And unfortunately, this country um, applies the same uh, punitive um, and uh, um, uh, approach to um, mistakes that we to children that we apply at the adult level, and mm -hmm. so we um, absolutely over incarcerate children for things that um, uh, they absolutely um, should not be removed from their homes or their communities for. And so, 25 um, years ago, um, as uh, the country was uh, grappling with the notion of you know super predators, this notion that there were these young people in our communities that needed to be removed in order to make them more safe, um, Casey began um, this incredible journey to help our country think about a more um, rational and research-based way uh, to deal with young people who may have made mistakes or who have gotten in trouble. And out of that grew the Juvenile Detention Alternatives Initiative. And what that work is focused on is really the beginning part of the juvenile justice system. If today a young person gets in trouble, they you know, maybe stole a candy bar at a uh, at a corner store. Um, what are the odds that that child is going home tonight while their case is adjudicated, or that they will sit in some type of locked facility as they await um, the uh, progress of their case? Um, we 
realized very early that that first decision of whether or not that young person goes home can have a huge impact on their lives for decades to come. And so our initiative was really about how to help juvenile justice systems and judges and communities make a better decision at that very first entry point. And overwhelmingly, those young people are not at any risk of hurting anyone in their community, and they're actually going to be better if they are at home with their families. And so what this initiative does is um, really helps adults make better decisions on the, on behalf of young people in order to keep them home. And we are so pleased that over the last 25 years, we have seen dramatic decreases in detention for young people, more than 50% um, from what we saw just 25 years ago. So, um, you know, that work has expanded from sort of what's that first decision point that um, uh, adults have to make a decision about to um, work we're even doing today around probation and how mm-hmm. we can make um, probation a more um, helpful uh, intervention for young people than just a compliance intervention. How can it help them get on track in school and get access to jobs and mentors, um, even to the deeper end of the system if a young person is adjudicated and determined to have done something wrong? Um, do they have to sit in locked, in locked institutions that prevent them from getting the education and rehabilitation they need? Yeah, you know, I find that to be fascinating, the way you tackle that, because a lot of people who want to change a system try to change a system. What you did is you looked at a particular niche, and that would have been mm-hmm. the time from you were arrested to the time you have your first hearing. Exactly. Uh, speak a little bit about that and how you try to identify those lever points right. to really change an entire system. I guess if one domino falls, <laughs> others will begin. It and does. you And you talk a little bit it about does. that. It does. I think that is one of the most um, special parts of the way that Casey does its work. And first I'll say it's that we choose to work with public systems because we know that public systems have such a big impact impact mm-hmm. on um, the lives of uh, vulnerable young people. Um, many foundations choose to only work with nonprofit organizations. Casey is one of the few that really believes that strengthening the decision-making and practices of a public system can have huge implications. And so the first thing I'll say that's special to your point is that we're partnering with public systems mm-hmm. and not just with nonprofit organizations. Um, but you know, one of the important ways we do that is by finding the key decision point. Yes. If you want to change a system, you can't boil the ocean. You've got to find a place to start. <laughs> That's what we all try to do. <laughs> That's what we all try to do. But we try to be um, very thoughtful and strategic and figure out what's the most important decision point we can tackle at this moment. And how can we change not just the tools that public systems or or stakeholders use to make those decisions, but often it's about the mindset. Mm -hmm. How do you change how people think about the decision they need to make at this moment? Can't change behavior until you change the mindset. Unless you change the mindset. And so that's been a big part of the work is to just change that mindset about, um, you know, the value of uh, family in these young people's lives and the importance of keeping them out of places that aren't safe for them, mm-hmm. that aren't giving them the supports they need, and that in many instances, the research tells us, put them on a, fa- a path to further delinquent behavior. So um, we really do try to use our work to build evidence about what 
works. Yeah. Um, and you use evidence before you do your work as well. We, you base so much of it on those practices. We do, and on data. Absolutely. That's, uh, you know, one of the things that is common about UPS and about the Annie E. Casey Foundation is that Jim Casey believed deeply in data. There was a quote that he had, you know, in God we trust in everything else we measure. And so <laughs> <laughs> there has always been a really deep commitment to data and evidence uh, at the foundation to inform our work, and that's what Kids Count grows out of and even initiatives like the Juvenile Detention Alternatives Is there a thread that runs through all the different things that you do? Um, I would say the the common belief that uh, we have to help young people have a brighter future, you know, that that guiding force. That's your mantra. um, That's our mantra. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would say that increasingly um, our work has um, been more organized around young people. There are organizations that focus more on younger children or adult interventions. Casey's work, when you think about juvenile justice, those young people who are most likely be in group homes and child welfare, which is a big issue for us, um, helping young people get access to jobs, they're, you know, graduate from high school and get their first job or even neighborhood um, issues. Um, I would say that young people are probably a common thread that you would find in uh, in Casey's work, which is an age population that's a little different than yeah, many of our peers. Yeah, a little bit different and changing all the time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we as uh, in the media focus so much on the income disparity mm-hmm. between racial groups and, mm-hmm. and others, but really the wealth divide is staggering. You've talked a little bit about that. Fill us in. Absolutely. Well, I I talked about the importance of economic stability for uh, young people growing up. Uh, And when you look at that data disaggregated by race, it is abundantly clear that um, families of color have um, not just less income, but also fewer assets Mm. in order to stabilize their families. When you think about what helps a family be stable, it's not just income every day, but it's also having some safety net of resources to help you weather the storm. If you have a car that breaks down, if a child gets sick, um, you need some resources to help you weather that. And that's what we often refer to as wealth. Mm -hmm. Um, Wealth isn't just about millionaires. (laughs) Wealth (laughs) is also about coming up with that $400. The average American. (laughs) And, you you know, you may have even seen the studies that most Americans don't have $400 to weather a storm. But we see that families of color are even more vulnerable Mm -hmm. and, and have those resources. So when we think about how to make families more economically stable, we aren't just thinking about workforce development and how to help people get better jobs. We're also thinking about how to create opportunities for them to save and build that nest egg that helps them weather the storm. And so that's where um, work around the racial wealth gap comes in, is what can we do to help more families of color um, who are disproportionately those families that can't, you know, weather those kinds of financial storms. What can we do to help them build up some assets? And uh, one of the ways that Casey has recently been thinking about that is around entrepreneurship. I know that. (laughs) Really, a lot of people don't think about that, but it really holds a tremendous amount of promise. Talk about some of the initiatives in that area, and particularly in the South. Absolutely. And one thing I will say is that, um, you know, the majority of children of color, 55 percent of them live in the South. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to try to address 
um, racial inequality. You need to go to the places where place to start. <laughs> those children are. <laughs> and they are actually predominantly in the South and the Southwest. And so geography is really important uh, as a part of this. Um, but as you note, there's been lots of research on what kinds of strategies address the racial wealth gap and entrepreneurship has been shown to be one of the most effective strategies in that regard. <laughs> Who knew? Well, if um, if you think about what a, a business does, um, it is an opportunity to, uh, you know, grow an income-producing uh, uh, asset over time. It's a way to accumulate um, resources over time. And so it, it is in some ways intuitive that um, entrepreneurship, building a business, uh, would enable families to have um, more stability. I'll say that I know that from my own experience. Mm -hmm. I am the daughter of uh, three generations of entrepreneurs and, you know, everything from the family farm that yeah. helped put my grandparents through college to, you know, my father has his own law firm. And mm -hmm. so that helped put me through <laughs> college. So <laughs> I, uh, I am, a, and I grew up in the South, so I'm a prime example of, um, of the benefits of, of entrepreneurship. Um, but what we also know is that very often um, entrepreneurs of color don't have access to the resources and um, information that they need in yeah. order to really build their businesses. Um, as any entrepreneur, entrepreneur knows, you need um, capital in order to help grow your business. And if you don't have access um, to money to help invest in your business, you're going to be constrained in how that business can grow. But you also need technical yes. information mm -hmm. about um, what markets are best to go into or what kind of equipment might you need to invest in and, um, you know, how can you manage your human resources in the most effective ways. And so our work is really about how to provide really those two key things. How do we help provide more access to capital for entrepreneurs and how do we provide access to the kind of technical assistance that they are going to need. And we are doing that work um, in two places in particular in uh, Baltimore and Atlanta, uh, two places we call our hometowns yes. um, because Baltimore is where the foundation is based. Atlanta is where UPS is headquartered. And in both of those places, we have um, work going on to strengthen community development finance institutions. So these are, you know, a particular kind of lending organization mm -hmm. um, that really caters to um, low-income individuals or those without access to um, mainstream banking services. So we're trying to strengthen these um, specialty banks, if you will, because they are an important source of both capital and technical assistance for um, uh, entrepreneurs of color and are seeing um, really some important ways that that's starting to build some momentum with entrepreneurs in those communities. Let's speak a little bit about Baltimore. Uh, the foundation, I believe, started in Seattle, moved to Greenwich, mm -hmm. and then in 1994 you came to Baltimore. What would you say the Casey's Foundation's relationship is with Baltimore, and did it change any after the uh, Freddie Gray affair? Well, I think Baltimore is just an incredible city. It is a place with um, wonderful people and incredible assets. It sits right in the middle of the East Coast on the water, um, you know, with great proximity to great business centers like D.C. and, and New York, um, amazing educational institutions there, um, and a vibrant arts community. The oldest arts college in the country is in Baltimore. So, um, you know, I, I do want to say I think it's a beautiful place and regret that Baltimore doesn't always get the recognition for being such a wonderful place uh, that it is. Uh, and so we're really fortunate that um, 
the foundation's first president made the decision to move us to Baltimore. Uh, and I think we have really thrived in that city and have really um, worked hard to be good citizens in that community. Our office is right in the middle of a beautiful historic neighborhood called mm -hmm. Mount Vernon. Uh, and we've got leaders, including me, who serve on nearly every uh, sort of civic leadership table uh, in the city because we really believe in the promise of and the really city. Care. And we really care about that city. And I'll say after the Freddie Gray incident, um, the foundation had been engaged in um, work across those three areas I talked about. Mm -hmm. We've been doing work around workforce development and helping uh, workforce programs. We got hundreds of people's jobs. We had been doing education work to help make sure kids had access to quality education. We'd been deeply invested in a project in East Baltimore to revive it and bring it back to um, to its um, uh, to a healthy, strong community for families. But post Freddie Gray, um, we really thought more about how we could help the young people in Baltimore. Freddie Gray, as a person, I think was um, reflected. Uh, his his life experience reflected so many of the challenges young people in Baltimore yeah, face. Emblematic of them. It really was. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a young person who grew up low income, who, you know, faced all kinds of uh, barriers in his life. And so I would say post-Freddie Gray, um, we've continued to do many of the same things we did before, but have really um, strengthened our focus on how we can help young people in Baltimore be successful, everything from um, investing more in summer learning opportunities for them, um, investing a lot more in youth leadership. How do we um, elevate the voice and the vision of young people in Baltimore who have so many ideas about ways that the city can be stronger? So um, I, I think we're excited about this new yeah. phase of our work um, and still think Baltimore is a beautiful city with lots to grow. Yeah, to young offer. people know the answers to their challenges. They do. Certainly better than you and I. They <laughs> do, and that's one thing philanthropy um, needs to do more of, mm -hmm. um, not just listening to young people, but also listening to um, those we seek to serve. Yeah. I think that's the closer an, you are to the problem, the closer you are to the solution. Absolutely. That's one thing Brian Stevenson, you know, always yeah. talks about uh, being proximate to the problem. And um, I would say that over time we're doing um, more and more to um, support uh, the leadership of not just young people, but those folks in the community who have great ideas about how their challenges can be addressed. When your predecessor, Patrick McCarthy, first had lunch with you, Lisa, <laughs> he said that you sounded like a Casey person. <laughs> now, I want to know, what does a Casey person sound like? Although I should probably know at this point of the interview. <laughs> well, um, I think what he was saying is that, uh, you know, I spent a good portion of my career at UPS. Mm -hmm. And UPS and Casey have that common founder in Jim Casey, and I believe that he instilled so many of the same values in the foundation that he brought to the company. And so I think his uh, hearing that I cared a lot about data, yeah. uh, that measurement and metrics mattered to me, um, I'll know that I was a Casey trustee before I became a Casey employee. <laughs> so he heard me speak as a as a trustee. I cared lots about measurement and, and metrics um, in our work. Um, Jim Casey used to have this phrase called constructive dissatisfaction, hmm. which meant that um, there's always a new horizon yeah. in your work. There's always more to do. You can never become complacent. And I think he heard my... Um, my belief that there was more the foundation could do and how could we focus on doing the most that we could for young people. Um, and uh, I think he heard the 
um, the deep commitment to children and families that it was an issue. The work we do is just an issue that I'm very passionate about. So I think that's what he meant, yeah. that I cared about data. I was never satisfied with what is, and I believe deeply in the mission. And I can also hear in your voice. There's a sense of urgency. Absolutely. Race for results. (laughs) We have to, we really need to pay attention to how our children are doing in this country because I don't think that any ambitions we have as a country can be realized unless we're paying attention to our children. Mm -hmm. And every day I see us making um, policy decisions and investment decisions that go counter to what's best for kids. And so I feel like it's urgent for us to get. public leaders and nonprofit leaders and um, uh, legislators all to um, prioritize the interests of children, I think we will be a much better place if we put our children first. How would you describe your leadership style? I would say I am probably a coach. Mm, That's (laughs) a great leadership style. (laughs) I, uh, I am so lucky that the nearly 200 people who work at the Annie Casey Foundation are just brilliant innovators and um, about the most dedicated group of people I've ever had the pleasure of working with. So um, when you have a fantastic team, the most important thing you can do is just be a great coach to them and help call the plays and <laughs> and uh, help, us, uh, help us train and prepare so that when we have to uh, get on the field, we are the best that we can be. Let me close with this, Lisa. You've been the CEO of, of the organization only since the beginning of the year. But how would you like to build upon what the organization has already been able to achieve? What is your vision for the future of the foundation? Uh, My vision is really about uh, integration and collaboration. Mm -hmm. I mentioned that the foundation for many years has been focused on strengthening families and building economic opportunity and uh, strengthening neighborhoods. We have often pursued those uh, results as if they are separate and apart from one another. Uh, But as I talked about the Kids Count work, they are deeply intertwined. And I have an aspiration that our organization um, can be successful not just in these independent areas, Mm -hmm. but that we can bring them together and think about the ways that place contributes to economic opportunity or recognize that many of the young people who are involved in systems come from the same neighborhoods and they're low income. So I think we've really got to do more to leverage the intersections in our work. And so I'm looking- How do you break down those silos? Well, I think it's about creating a common result. And as I said, a lot of the work that we do focuses on young people. Mm -hmm. And so I'm excited for a future at Casey where we are thinking about how we can bring all of our strategies together to help young people be successful. Yeah, that's great to hear you say that because I've spoken to a number of other CEOs of foundations who say we're demanding this integrated holistic approach from the community to solve problems But we're siloed ourselves, so you know, we better practice what we're preaching <laughs> well, and think, start at home. <laughs> well, I think often we imagine it'll be easier to tackle an issue if we just take it on one separate piece at a time. But if you don't appreciate the intersections of those things, you're actually not going to get the, the right solutions. I imagine it's sort of like a Rubik's Cube. Yeah. You don't win at a Rubik's Cube just getting all the yellows lined up. You can only win at a Rubik's Cube if you align all the different sides and they relate to one another. You can't solve one side without solving for the other. So I think of our work like a Rubik's Cube. I want us to think about how we can solve problems uh, multiple 
multiple problems at one time rather than just trying to solve for one color at that a time. That is a great metaphor. <laughs> well, yeah. thank you. And also, and I think when you're trying to solve one problem at a time, you have those unintended consequences in those other areas <laughs> because you're only focused on your area. Right. Well, Lisa Hamilton, the president and CEO of the Annie E. Casey Foundation, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. What information is on your website you think would be of particular interest to some of the listeners out there? Well, our website is aecf.org, Annie E. Casey Foundation's initials. Mm -hmm. um, and there is a wealth of uh, information from uh, information about our investment projects to a vast amount of research. Uh, and you can also access the Kids Count Data Center through that, which has millions of data points about children in this country uh, that we'd invite uh, your listeners to take a look at. Well, thank you, Lisa. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. I appreciate being here. I'll be back with more of the Business of Giving right after this. <laughs> 